1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
0: I like to think about children, because um, while I was writing this book, I had two, um, as uh, sort of bottomless pits of need. But we have a, a secret weapon that no other species has which uh, is, is a highly suspicious invention, totally, totally weird, and that is grandmas. It's called the grandmother hypothesis. And it's this idea that grandmothers are essential to basically upping the investment in our super, super needy babies.
1: That's Brenna Hassett. The book she's written is called Growing Up Human. And it's a lively and often very funny take on one of the most unappreciated traits that make us humans different from all other animals. It's our extraordinarily long childhood. Brenna joined me for our conversation from London, where she's a researcher at University College London's Institute of Archaeology. So you have this way of introducing insight into our childhoods, something we all share. But by comparing it to how we got this way through the evolutionary process, it really throws it into a new perspective, I think.
0: Oh, thanks. I mean, I, I hope so. It's, it's one of my pet peeves that, um, we talk a lot about the evolution of things like man the hunter or fire or tools. But some of the things that I think are actually incredibly important for our species get kind of overlooked, despite the fact that, you know, um, the only way we get more of our species is by having children. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. And the way we care for our children is one of the ways in which you apply, as far as I can tell, you apply the technical term weirdness. We're... we're <laughs> We're weird compared to other animals. What what makes us weird?
0: Oh, we are so weird, and and I mean it. It starts at the beginning and it just goes on. So, um, you know, I like I like to think of uh, the weirdness as really starting before any individual child is actually born. Um, we're really weird as animals because um we do this thing called pair bonding, mm. and. The rest of you know the animal kingdom has decided that that's just a waste of resources. Why would you pair off? Only about 5% of animals go for pair bonding, unless you count birds. But of course, they're weird.
1: I was out with scientists one night before dawn, watching female <laughs> birds cross a neutral path to another area where they could mate out of the pair bonding unit.
0: I feel like that probably has some... Uh, <laughs> corollaries yeah um, right, right in in us other um allegedly uh monogamous species, I feel like um it might be a slight misnomer
1: monogamy and pair bonding it seem to be a little different. Can you use them interchangeably those two terms
0: well, I think um what what probably we really mean for for kind of an evolutionary biology um perspective is pair bonding where um an animal with um you know it pairs off with another and that's a more or less long term thing monogamy tends to be what humans say about human relationships and uh, I think <laughs> I think a good divorce lawyer can take that down in minutes so we can stick with pair bonding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. You
0: know, my favourite is is the the albatross. Who, um, you know, they they mate for life. That's it. They're done. Of course, humans are a little bit more flexible, um, right. which is uh, probably a little bit more adaptive. Because, of course, for an albatross, um, if you decide you don't like Mister or Mrs. Albatross, you're in trouble. You're not reproducing anymore. Whereas for us, we seem to have developed this pair bonding. Um, which sort of, there's a bunch of evolutionary theories about why we would do this. Primates do it a lot more than other animals, about 15% of them. And then we seem to be really, really into it. And one of the things I think is so fascinating that tells us a lot about us is essentially it gives us an extra pair of hands. Mm. So I, I like to think about children because um, while I was writing this book, I had two, um, as uh, sort of... Bottomless pits of need. (laughs) Human children, (laughs) they need a lot. Um, And I think one of the ways that we can look at one of our sort of, um, you know, all of our weirdnesses is that they're all geared around feeding the insatiable demands of our super, super needy children. Um so one of the things that we've done is actually basically invent dads. Um mm. my favorite of the of the primates of the non-human primates are little little tiny guys like the marmosets. Um and their dad his sole job is just carrying those babies. That dad marmoset is there he's going to carry those two babies for a year. <laughs> so mm. Mom's off doing stuff she's busy. Um but It looks like, you know, um, we have not only dads, but we have a a secret weapon that basically no other species has in terms of caring for our children, um, which uh, is is a highly suspicious invention, totally, totally weird, and that is grandmas.
1: Yeah, they're very, very useful.
0: Yeah, and totally, totally evolutionary out of the park, Um, like just such a strange... Species who have grandmas. Us? Some whales. No other species. If you think about it from a sort of evolutionary perspective, why would you turn off the ability to have babies, right? If the game is to make more babies?
1: Yeah, and there are species that continue to have babies way late in life.
0: All of them. Yeah, so even even though they may not have very successful babies um some uh, like chimpanzee is still have a, basically still has eggs and still has the capacity technically it doesn't really work out but for us we stop and this is an evolutionary sort of theory to explain why we have older women who aren't busy having babies of their own it's called the grandmother hypothesis and it's this idea that grandmothers are essential to basically upping the investment in our super, super needy babies.
1: So the the hypothesis is actually that in order to have more grandmothers, we turn off the reproduction switch?
0: Exactly. So all of the resources that grandmas could be putting into their own kids is suddenly doubled down onto their kids'
1: kids. And I know from experience that the grandparent is only too ready to take on the grandparent role. My wife and I around the time that we were expecting our children to have children we would stop strange babies on the street in their carriages and stare at them and drool at them and we were hastening the progress of the grandparent role
0: and I, it it turns out that that is a critical part of human evolution uh, my own parents um uh, yeah i would i would put it as absolutely freaked out <laughs>
1: <the> second <laughs> <they> became grandparents <laughs>
0: It was a whole new side. And um, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty lovely relationship.
1: Well, it's so strong. The, the experience is so strong. It's very common for grandparents to either say or feel, if I knew how great grandchildren were, I would have started there.
0: <laughs> I mean, there's some logistic hurdles. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so what other ways are we weird?
0: Well, I mean, it's mostly ways we, you know, it's harder to find ways we aren't weird. So human babies, the way I like to think of it, you know, we are these investment sinks. So um, that kind of shows up in how much our babies take from us, um, how much our babies need to grow their special particular humanness. Um, so it starts, you know, before the womb, in the womb, Babies actually, human babies, have um, a fairly unique ability to send certain types of signals to the mother when they're in the womb that they would like more nutrition. These are actually kind of the root mechanisms that are behind things like preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, which are killers of pregnant women. And other species really do not have these near-fatal pregnancies. So that's something that we seem to have evolved uh, in order to basically keep our very demanding babies growing.
1: What role do you think the size of the birth canal has?
0: So this is another exciting venture into evolutionary theory. So many of you who um, suffered through Bio 101 or uh, whatever the class was will have heard the theory that human beings walk upright. So we have a certain shape and tilt to our pelvis that helps us maintain that walking gait and gives us our evolutionary advantage of walking. So that narrow pelvis, however, is combined with trying to be really smart. So our babies have huge brains and therefore huge heads. And you end up with what you could euphemistically call the sofa in a stairwell problem.
1: Um, (laughs) I haven't heard that analogy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's more or less what it is. Um, And that, that actually is another hurdle. If you think, you know, evolutionarily, reproduction is very important. You know, that's how a species gets to make more of itself. And we've put up hurdles where women can actually die because of this kind of mismatch. And it's one of the things that our needy, needy, demanding babies are actually able to to get so much out of us that they just grow a little bit too big.
1: Now, I would, I would think because of the cost of that in the lives of the mothers, that nature would have taken that into its economic appraisal of what's, what it's worth. Seems to me, if the baby is, is allowed to demand so much nourishment before it's born, that it endangers the life of the mother... Is that going to help us get more babies or, or is it limiting the supply?
0: Well, I think one of the things um, that, that humans have done, and this is a kind of evolutionary biology catch-all, it's not very specific, but you can look at animals um, as sort of fast breeders or slow breeders, animals that um, invest a huge amount in one offspring or um, animals that just sort of shotgun it. So... You know, poor old Charlotte from Charlotte's Web. She's, she's going to have a thousand babies and they're going to be ready to fly the second she, you know, they're, they're born. Whereas something like us, we really put the investment in, um, that one animal. But for, um, spiderlings, they don't all make it. For humans, we really do expect them to make it. So that investment pays off. So somewhere along the line, the, you know, the the small proportion of uh, poor outcomes seems to have been well overbalanced by how successful the rest of us are. Because if you look at the planet, I mean, we definitely won the, the primate sweet stakes. We are everywhere.
1: Your interest in teeth is very interesting to me. You're a real expert in used teeth. <laughs>
0: Used teeth. I like that. I hadn't heard used teeth. That's fantastic. Um, Yes, I actually, so my actual PhD is in used teeth, which is now what I'm going to call it. (laughs) Um, Dental anthropology. So teeth are fantastic. So teeth are essentially fossils that are still in your mouth. And for anyone who's ever broken a bone, you know, eventually the bone kind of knits back together, it heals over the, you know, it's mostly unrecognizable. Your teeth, you chip them. No, it's going to take a dentist. It's going to be expensive and you're not going to like it, but it's never going to heal itself, which means that it's a perfect record of the time it was forming. So my interest in sort of children and how they grow comes from um, our ability as anthropologists to look at the fossils in our mouth, the ascent you know, these teeth that preserve this perfect record of how you grow and um, the geography you grew up in, using various chemical techniques, what you were eating. All of these things are actually preserved in your teeth. So um, someone like me can come along thousands or hundreds of thousands of years after you've passed away. I can get my uh, diamond saw and my laser out, and I can tell you how long you were breastfed, what the rocks were like where you grew up.
1: You can even tell the daily deposit of a line of growth, right? Yes. That's amazing. How does that work?
0: So your teeth, when they're growing, they have little cells that are laying down, the the enamel that'll become the hard white outside of your teeth. And they fluctuate. And they fluctuate in humans on a sort of roughly 24-hour scale. So if you give me my saw and a strong enough microscope, I can actually count those days and we basically can create a clock based on your teeth there's usually a big scar in your teeth where something disrupts it and everyone has one single scar that we use as a baseline which is the trauma of birth which Mm. is actually written into your teeth
1: wow um
0: yeah so for most people it's on the inside so you can't actually see where this scar would would come out But um, if you chop the tooth open, particularly um, like your big first chewing tooth, so your molar, you can see this big scar. And then if you start counting days from that, you can make a little schedule of what happened in a child's life. And you can use various other techniques to, say, for instance, see what they were eating based on chemical traces left in that enamel, and all sorts of other things. I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. And it's It's the closest we get to being able to rebuild lives from the past. So I'm a little obsessed.
1: (laughs) Does that mean that if you have an ancient tooth dig up someplace, that you can tell how old the person was who owned the tooth?
0: Exactly. So if they died while the tooth was still growing, we Hmm. can count till the end of um, how many days until the tooth sort of stopped. If If the teeth have finished growing, so they're sort of adult teeth, then we're not as able to do the sort of um, technical wizardry, and we have to just basically go by our normal standards of wear and tear, um, which are are different all over the world. But um, at some point, an archaeologist is able to to more or less throw you into a category of (laughs) younger, middle, or older-aged adult.
1: This isn't directly related to childhood, although it is in a way. In your previous book about bones, you said that, when people were hunter-gatherers, their teeth didn't suffer as much as when they learned to store food because then they were able to eat more carbohydrates, right? And what, what was the result of that? How did their teeth suffer?
0: Well, other animals don't need dentists. There's there's no squirrel dentistry or, or whatever. And, you know, the reason why we have such a mismatch um, seems to be that we don't use our jaws in the same way as our jaws were designed to be used. So about 15,000 years ago, um, we start to see in the skeletons that we dig up in archaeological sites, we start to see slightly wonky teeth. And your whole jaw is there to basically support your teeth, and everything about your mouth is a finely tuned system, ready to respond to what you ask it to do. So if we don't ask our jaws to put to to pull heavy loads, to do lots of chewing, um you know, uncooked grain, you know, lesser cooked grains, very fibrous food, things that aren't like, you know, pot noodle and easy to eat. Um then our jaws don't grow as much. And if our jaws don't grow as much, there is not enough room for our teeth but nobody told the teeth. The teeth are still coming out the exact same size that your genetics told them to. So we have these big teeth in these small jaws and surprise, surprise, they go crisscross and the back ones, the last ones always get stuck. And that's why we have wisdom tooth surgery. And I <laughs> I, I don't think anyone knew when they were inventing carbs, you know, and bread <laughs> that we were going to have to <laughs> deal with wisdom teeth
1: because of And this. And did you suddenly find more cavities in the teeth more carries
0: yeah so what you eat affects your mouth quite seriously um if you stick carbohydrates particularly sugary ones in your mouth it changes the ph all the bacteria in your mouth go wild and you get cavities um and we actually do see um there's a really uh, sort of famous example when sugar gets introduced to england medieval england um it does seem like suddenly everyone gets bad teeth.
1: (laughs) So it does relate to childhood today when (laughs) when you're standing by the sink saying, no, you have to brush your teeth now you
0: do have to brush your teeth it is it is sadly true the amazing thing about that internal clock and what kind of it gets used for in the study of childhood is because that internal clock works for us and we know exactly how long it takes to form a tooth you know we know how many days to grow this kind of tooth or that kind of tooth we can actually track back in our fossil history to see if all of our ancestors had the same kind of childhood we did and what happened, where we diverged from our lines. So we could look at something like an ape and see an ape's tooth and count how many days it makes, you know, to do an ape tooth versus how many days to do a human tooth. And we can start plotting our fossil ancestors in between. And the amazing thing is, is that we really start lengthening our childhoods from very early on, from the earliest homo species two million years ago, a little bit more, a little bit less, we start to see teeth that take longer to grow. And those teeth taking longer to grow means the rest of the animal is also taking longer to grow. And that's what gets us what I think is like the most important human adaptation, which is our incredibly long childhoods.
1: When we come back from our break, Brenna Hassett finds the silver lining in what is for children and parents alike, one of the most fraught phases of those incredibly long childhoods, and that's adolescence. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. patreo dot slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Brenna Hassett. Are there stages to the childhood that other animals don't go through? What what benefit do we get from such a long childhood? For instance, everybody has to, at least in our culture, everybody has to go through adolescence. And it's painful often, sometimes not for the adolescents, but for the parents. And I'm wondering, what's gained by adolescence? I think other animals are a little lucky to have not have to go through it.
0: I'm, I'm slightly terrified because my kids are too young and I don't know what's coming. Be warned. Um, I, I am warned. The So the really interesting thing is actually we are definitely not the only great apes who seem to have teenagers. Um, really? Yeah. So um, – Adolescence is actually a really interesting, very extended period in humans. We have pretty short infancies, which is the period where we're we're glued onto to mom, you know we're breastfeeding we're we're totally reliant on one person, and then we go off and we're we're sort of into the it takes a village stage very quickly, and that probably relates to that whole our babies are very needy. They need a lot of extra helping hands. Um, and then we have, you know, we we hit our sort of ability to reproduce, but we don't go off and reproduce. There's no human culture that thinks it's a good idea. And it turns out there's no great ape culture that thinks that's a great idea either. Almost all the great apes have this period where they sort of hit puberty and then they just wait for a bit, essentially learning to be a better monkey um, that seems to be what childhood is for. And what I love is um, gorillas. Uh, so gorillas have a complicated social world where there's one big male and he has females and juveniles with him. So he's got kids and, and um, females. But the adolescent males, they're not old enough or big enough to challenge him, but they're a little too old to stay with the kids. So what happens is you get gorilla boy bands. <laughs> they go off in the jungle. They form a, you know, a, a four-top. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they must be a big hit on the gorilla internet. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they are.
0: But I I just thought that was so amazing. It, you know, one of the things that actually that adolescent period seems to do in several primate species is that's when animals leave their their birth groups. And for animals that are so social and require so much learning in order to get through life, um, you know, even chimpanzees and gorillas need to learn skills. They actually take those skills with them into new groups. So having teenagers <laughs> may not be the uh, adaptive mistake that it appears from outside. It may actually be that that's the period where a lot of knowledge is actually getting transferred between groups. And if anyone's ever seen TikTok, which my students have showed me, <laughs> yes. um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on um, that is being communicated, you know, and shared across groups. So it might be that this long adolescence, and um, for some of us, you know, the period between uh when we are invested in and when we start investing in others is very long indeed these days. Um, It might be that actually we're we're doing a bunch of other useful stuff, learning, you know, how to how to be better at uh, being human during this period. And of course, you know, getting PhDs and used teeth.
1: Yeah, that brings up two ideas, two questions I have. One is it's clear that we spend a lot of time socializing children, learning how to get by in a world that where a lot of what your interactions involve is under the surface there are a lot of things you have to learn. Then you get into academic learning and I guess other forms of learning where it's common now to be in your thirties and still getting support from an older generation, from your, from your parents and grandparents. Have we extended our childhoods in memorable history or are we, are are we doing what, what we've always done with a different name on it?
0: (laughs) I think, um, it's it's kind of a little bit of both. So I think one of the most interesting things is that what we spend our childhood actually doing isn't so different from other primates. Um, we do observation of our parents or other animals around us. Um, peering, you know, just staring is is actually a primate wide technique and it's very popular. Um, I what are they staring at? Oh, anything. Uh, but usually they, um, it does seem like in almost uh, all the great apes, especially, uh, they'll find a particularly skilled person who's you know either smashing a nut really well or making a hand axe or whatever it is. Um, they'll observe the behavior. Um, chimpanzees will watch their mothers uh, fish for termites.
1: Yeah, I've seen that. I've watched a baby chimp observing the mother and what struck me about it was that the mother apparently was making no attempt overtly to teach the child just letting the kid watch and that seems to be a difference between them and us i mean we we make a conscious effort to teach am i am i off track with that
0: no no actually this is a really um that's a really interesting point um and well observed it it was it was too complicated actually for my book so you've you've actually caught on to something that's a big argument about whether our human style of learning, which requires educators, it requires a kind of formulaic teaching, um, is really different from what other animals do because we do this observation um, type of learning, which is what most animals do. Um, and, you know, without, without um, you know, uh, your, your mom's not necessarily turning to you every time she's loading the dishwasher, but eventually you realize that this is how the dishwasher gets loaded, or you're dead. Um, but we have this kind of formal teaching that other apes don't have. Um, and we think of it as something that's, that's sort of totally modern. But one of my absolute favorite things is uh, this, this text that's from 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, and it's called School Days. And it's, it's, it's a formulaic text. It's something that pretty much everyone had to learn. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the quick brown fox uh, jumped over the lady. It's something that people learned how to write.
1: Uh. Um,
0: so we find lots of copies of it. So we actually have found enough copies. We know what was said. And um, it's about uh, an Akkadian kid. Uh, so um, he's, he's trying to learn Sumerian because they all have to do their scribal school in Sumerian, like learning Latin today. Uh, Yes, right. And he just has the worst day. He gets up, his mom gets him lunch, but he gets to school and he's late. So he gets the cane, his shirt's untucked. He gets the cane. He talks in class. He gets the cane. I mean, and then eventually by the end of the day, you know, um, his hand is so shaky when he's writing a Sumerian. He gets cane for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's in his school days.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, and you just think 5,000 years ago, these poor little scribal school kids Oh, it's a pretty harsh education.
1: I think an interesting point you make is that when we make the decision to support children, sometimes up to the age of 30, that doesn't happen to everybody. It's not possible for everybody. In one part of the world, we can afford to support them. Many of us can afford to support the children till they're 30. In many other parts of the world, they have to be ready to get out in the world at 11, or at least stop their education.
0: I think, yeah, for me, that's, uh, you know, if I'm going to get on a, a soapbox about anything, I think for me, that was, there's one of the most important points about this is we have these mechanisms that have sort of given us a long childhood. We've ev- we've evolved physically to have a very slow childhood, a long time growing up. And we use that time to learn. That's what we use it for. Um, And some people, you know, we're extending this even further. We're we're allowing a longer social childhood, essentially, on top of the physical childhood. Um, But it's a very social decision. So when we start to see human societies with real differences between the haves and the have-nots, which is sort of eh, 5,000-ish years ago when the first cities start to appear and things like that, we start to see real differences in in outcomes for children. I'm an archaeologist um, by training, so a lot of what I do is excavating, um, you know, the, the remains of children. And we start to see all sorts of inequality kind of written into the bones. And of course, those are written into the life chances. And it's each society, you know, has the power to decide what they're going to do about education. I mean, uh, my grandma finished at 16, and that was considered to be pretty phenomenal for a woman of her time and her class and mm. you know and here i am i got my phd at 30 <laughs> so you know that's that's two generations to completely change the course of a, a human life and meanwhile you know i've i've got my student loans and my uh my fancy degrees but uh the taliban has just shut down education for girls yeah. in afghanistan so you know um we are all making these decisions who deserves an education? What are we willing to pay for as a society? We're making them all the time, and um, you know, uh, remains to be seen what kind of what kind of society we want to build.
1: We're starting to run out of time, but I did want to ask you, what is Trowelblazers?
0: Uh, Trowelblazers is an amazing pun thought <laughs> <found out> up <laughs> by my co-creator. Pun. So um, about 10 years ago now, uh, myself and three other um, early career researchers, we were all women, we realized that we sort of had these stories of these amazing women who'd been in our field, but they'd, they'd gotten lost. Other people didn't know them. So women who, you know, climbed the pyramids uh, in their Victorian bloomers, because skirts really don't help with that. Um, you know, women who cross-dressed to go and excavate in Iran because uh, they couldn't get away with it otherwise. Um, you know, they're just amazing stories of women who contributed to what we call the digging sciences. So your archaeology, your geology, your paleontology. Um, and we just kind of try and rescue their stories and put them up for for people to to share and to see and just remind. You know, actually, there were a lot of women doing a lot of fascinating things, but maybe they didn't make, you know, top billing at the time.
1: So you, that's at com.
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: Great. Great. Okay. We have to move on to our seven quick questions with which we end every show. Okay. Of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood?
0: <laughs> what my toddler is saying. <laughs>
1: We, When we had two kids that were almost the same age, about a year apart, and one babbled blah, 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 like this, my wife would ask the other one, what is she saying? And she'd say, she says she wants ice cream.
0: <laughs> ah, your translator might be a little biased. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs>
0: I think you, you always got to start from a place of interest. As long as you can sort of uh, show you've got a shared interest, I think that's, that's where you got to start. Uh, some people are never going to believe they're wrong. <laughs> but let's hope yeah. that we can share some interests.
1: <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
0: <laughs> would, would you be able to tell if I killed my brother? That came from a, a a child audience member at one of my museum talks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and did he did he finish it by saying at three o'clock today?
0: It's, well, I did. I did sort of give the parents a look. They looked apologetic, so I hope the situation was under
1: control. <laughs> Should have looked alarmed, not apologetic. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
0: Oh, I don't know. I guess you. <laughs> I've never figured it out because I haven't stopped talking yet. <laughs>
1: Give him a book. You no, know, that's a good idea. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation?
0: Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, it's not it's not very nice to sort of say, "What do you do?" and assume that you know someone's whole identity is tied up in their job, right? So, uh, my my new yeah. thing is trying to say, "What are you into?" <laughs>
1: Uh uh that's a, a short way to say it that's good. What gives you confidence?
0: Uh oh toddler babbles I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: a slightly more serious answer would hopefully be um you know uh the the sort of slow slow pile up of facts and experience that make a scientific career sort of slowly build up your confidence you might be understanding something but i think slow is the operative term
1: what book changed your life
0: oh gosh you know it's it's not so popular these days because it's not exactly correct but um guns germs and steel ah. i was blown away i had no idea that you could try and explain humanity like, wow, what a big question. What a fascinating subject. That just blew my mind. And then I went off and tried to do it a bunch of... <laughs> I'm still trying.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, it's really fun to read, your explora- to read about your explorations. And I had a great time talking with you. Thank you for a lot of fun.
0: Oh, thank you. Me too.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Brenna Hassett is a research associate at University College London and a scientific associate at London's Natural History Museum. As a bioarchaeologist, she specializes in using clues from the human skeleton, including teeth, to understand how people lived and died in the past. That was the subject of her first book, Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death. Her new book is Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Adam Gopnik. In his book called The Real Work, he sets out not to master, but to appreciate what mastering would entail. Such diverse skills as figure drawing, dancing, boxing, even at the age of 50, driving. He learns to understand what magicians call the real work, the consummate skill that actually goes beyond skill. I'll never be Michelangelo, but I understand now what goes into the business of making a life, drawing a naked human being. I understand that better. You don't want to get in the car with me at 2 a.m. to drive from Boston to New York, but I know what driving is about. And boxing, which has been a particularly rich one for me, if they find another five foot five. Jewish writer who has been practicing a sedentary occupation for the past 40 years, I'll hop into the ring. I'm in, I, you know, and I'm, I'm going to Vegas, the Caesar, Caesar's Palace parking lot. But in the absence of that, the way that just those simple um, aspirations to mastery through perseverance genuinely burst our hearts with pleasure, that's accessible to everyone. Adam Gopnik, learning to appreciate the real work.